0: You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 is where we are tonight, and we are going to be reading verses 47 through 56, but... Our focus tonight will be on verses 51 through 56. So let's read beginning in verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, and with him was a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Therefore, how will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place in order that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the ministry of the Word of God in song. How our hearts have already been encouraged and lifted toward You as we have had opportunity to sing of Your greatness and our love and admiration of our Savior who is the Lamb of God who has taken away our sins. To sing of His exaltation, to sing of His glory fills our hearts with joy. We can't for even one moment Give honest reflection to your goodness to us, your faithfulness, your kindness, without being overwhelmed by how you've loved us and disappointed in the weakness of our love toward you and the weakness of our faithfulness toward you. But Lord, that is the story of our rescue and our deliverance. It's not one explained by our works, but by your grace, and we thank you. We have known your grace and mercy, the freeness of salvation, the completeness of salvation. In and through the finished work of our Savior, we give you thanks that we are yours. It is our desire tonight, Lord, that we would worship you well around your word, that this sermon would be a fitting and acceptable act of worship, and the hearing of it would be a fitting and acceptable act of worship. So we ask that you would work in and through the preaching and in and through the listening That we would leave tonight edified that you would be exalted in our vision that our hearts would be fixed on you even as we sang a moment ago that the spirit of god would strengthen us to fix our eyes on the lord jesus and we do pray for anyone hearing me tonight who doesn't know you and we ask that even this night would be a night of salvation we will thank you for all that you do in jesus name amen Judas Iscariot leads what amounts to a small army, an alliance of Jewish religious leaders, the temple guard, a dispatch of Roman soldiers. He leads this crowd to arrest a single man, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It will forever be the most despicable act of betrayal in the history of the world. And what makes it that is the glory, the perfections of the one who was betrayed. It wasn't just someone good who was betrayed, it was one who was perfectly good. It wasn't just someone with personal greatness who was betrayed, it was God's own son. We looked at that betrayal this morning. Verses 47 through 50, we saw that a strange alliance is on display in the arresting force. The Jews, the Romans, and one of Christ's own men. We talked about how that speaks to us of the the sinful nature of man, how self-serving man is in his sin, willing to make friendships with anyone as long as it advances his own desires and his own ends. They don't like each other, but they'll work together out of their common hatred for the Son of God or their desire to accomplish something that serves them. He talked about the outrageous sign that Judas had arranged of all the ways that he could identify Jesus. He chose what was emblematic of friendship and affection. And it was a lying symbol. It was a lying sign because When Judas kissed him, it was an act of hatred and destruction. We talked about the outrageous pretense in the giving of that sign because he also voices words that would leave the impression that he rejoiced to see Jesus and that he honored Jesus as his teacher. This one is a liar, a murderer, a devil, just as Jesus said that he was early on in Christ's earthly ministry. And yet through it all, against the backdrop of the darkness of man's sins, we saw the glory of our Savior, His glorious kindness and His glorious calmness. Man's darkest sins cannot obscure or nullify God's glory or nullify His decrees. Something we ask and we must ask when we see a scene like this is, how do you explain someone like Judas? How can someone like Judas Iscariot exist? The obvious answer is, there is no wickedness beyond the ability of man in his sin. Just when you think man can't go any lower, he goes lower. We're seeing that in our culture right now, aren't we? When you think we've hit rock bottom, there's still another rung at the bottom of the ladder. Mankind in his sin is a devil. Cruelty, deception, perversion, murder, ruin, none of it is too great a darkness for man when he's estranged from God, estranged from his Creator. So while there will forever be only one Judas Iscariot, only one who fulfilled the prophecies concerning the betrayal of the Son of God, hell will be full of people like Judas who were identified as disciples but they proved to be apostates. And if you ask how can there be apostates, beyond the obvious, they are sinners. Apostates exist because men lie to themselves about the fruits of regeneration. If I ask you tonight, are you a Christian? Do you really know the Lord Jesus Christ? And you examine the biblical signs of spiritual life. If you, for example, go through a book like 1 John and you say look at, at what it says about those who really have eternal life. Are you honest with yourself in comparison with those evidences? And this is how apostates exist. They keep telling themselves that they are regenerate when all of the biblical signs say they are not. In other words, what is often happening at the beginning stages at least the apostate is turning a deaf ear to the troubles that exist in his or her own soul. They know something is missing. They know something is wrong. But they're unwilling to acknowledge it. Not only do apostates lie to themselves, they lie to others about why they are associated with Jesus. For a time, they... Are among us. They're not of us. Eventually, they leave, and that becomes manifest. But for a time, they are among us. And if you ask why, why are they there? The answer is there's something about association with Jesus. There's something about association with this church that answers a desire in their heart. Not the kind of desire that exists in salvation. A worldly desire. A desire that finds some temporal satisfaction. Eventually, of course, that wears off and goes away. But Not only are they being dishonest with themselves about why they continue to maintain that connection with Christ and His disciples, they they play a role. They give the impression that they are here for the same reason you are, when in fact they're here for a different reason. People enjoy many things that accompany Christianity, but the question is, do do you love the yoke of Christ? Do you acknowledge the lordship of Christ? Do you submit your heart to the Word of Christ? Do you see your existence as being for the glory of Christ? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ? And therefore you can say to die is gain. If that's not what is in your heart, you need to know there's something wrong. So we saw the the betrayal. Tonight, beginning at verse 51, we set our attention on the betrayed. The one who was betrayed. Look again at verses 51 through 54. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And He will at once put at My disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Therefore, how will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? A few things I want to point out about the Lord Jesus from these verses. First of all, I want you to see that there's nothing in Him in these verses that is destructive. He is not destructive. He didn't come into the world the first time to condemn it. He came into the world to provide salvation. He hasn't come to destroy. He's come to deliver. And that's on display right here. You have one of His disciples who is willing to fight, who wants to fight. We know from the Gospel of John who this was. This was Peter. And we know the name of the Priest slave who lost his ear for a moment. His name was Malchus. The slave's name was Malchus. John 18 verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter, who has been warned by Jesus, Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter who says, I will go to prison with you. I will die with you before I will deny you probably thought, this is it. This is the test. This is the moment of testing. I will either pass it or fail it, right here. And I said I would die with you, and I will. And so, misunderstanding the test, which still awaits him later in the night, one that he will fail just like Jesus said that he would. Peter takes out his sword and he, Lops off the ear of this man, Malchus. What does Jesus do? He immediately puts a stop to what Peter is doing. Verse 52 Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Jesus, not only, we'll talk about that statement here in a moment, but Jesus, at the same time, is communicating to His men, I am going to embrace the cup my Father has given me. It's not my desire to fight our way out of this. I am submitting to my Father's will, just as I've been praying about in the garden prior to them arriving. This is the cup that's been given to me by my Father. This is what I will drink. John 18 verse 11 says, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Put your sword up, Peter. I'm ready to embrace what I must do to save my people from their sins. Matthew doesn't tell us, but there's another supernatural kindness that takes place at this very moment that demonstrates that Christ has not come to destroy but to deliver. Luke 22 verse 48 says, But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. You might wonder, why wasn't Peter arrested? Well, there was no harm done. Because what he had just... Wounded, Jesus made perfectly well. Jesus performs a miracle right there in this moment. I can't read that and I can't read John's account where Jesus identifies Himself and at first identification the soldiers all fall over. You can't see these supernatural things taking place without wondering how do you continue on to arrest Him when all of this is taking place? How do you arrest Him when He puts down The willingness for violence from his own men. How do you arrest him when he heals the high priest servant who just had his ear lopped off, restores his ear? How do you arrest him when his power is already on on display in such a way that he's bowled you over with his words? The blindness of sinners, the stubbornness of sinners. But here in Matthew's account, we do read, A warning, don't we? Put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Obviously, it is true that if you live a violent life, you all almost always suffer a violent death. We heard that this morning in Psalm 55 as Bush was reading these prophecies concerning the betrayal of Jesus. And in that psalm, there is the warning of how men of bloodshed will die in half the length of time that most would. But I think our Lord is saying something in addition to to that obvious reality. I think what He's saying is fighting for a kingdom belongs to those who ultimately win nothing. Fighting for earthly kingdoms is never an eternal struggle. It's only for a moment. It's only temporary, even if you win. Kingdoms rise. Kingdoms fall. Kingdoms are won through battle for a time, but eventually they're lost in the same way. And That's not to say that in the realm where the sword is appropriate, and I'll talk about that in a moment, that's not to say that in the realm where the sword is appropriate there's nothing won of significance for a time, but even then it doesn't last forever. We think about our own nation. Whether the revolution should have ever been fought or not, that's another debate. But we obviously see how God, in His mercy, has poured out blessings upon this nation as a result of the struggle that we were victorious through. But look where we are now. <laughs> we are collapsing from within. And if God is not merciful and if He doesn't pour out an awakening on this country, this country, if Christ tarries, will eventually fall. They all do. So there's no eternal kingdom on this side of Christ's kingdom on the earth. In fact, our Lord will go on to say, John 18, verse 36, answering Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. In other words, you can never advance a spiritual kingdom Through physical force. The role for the sword is not to advance a spiritual kingdom. And anyone who misunderstands that and thinks otherwise will discover that if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. J.C. Ryle said this The sword has a legitimate role. It may be used righteously in the defense of nations against oppression, it may become positively necessary to use it to prevent riots and looting on earth, oh, that our police, our our mayors in some of these liberal cities would learn that about the police force. You disarm the police and then watch what happens. But I digress. It may become positively necessary to use it to prevent riots and looting on earth, but the sword is not to be used in the propagation and maintenance of the gospel. Christianity is not to be enforced by bloodshed and belief in it. Exhorted by force. It would have been better for the church if this sentence had been remembered more frequently. There are few countries in Christendom where the mistake has not been made of attempting to change people's religious opinions by compulsion, penalties, imprisonment, and death, and with what effect? The pages of history supply an answer. No wars have been so bloody as those which have arisen out of the collision of religious opinions, often, sadly, often. The very men who have been most forward to promote those wars have themselves been slain. May we never forget this. The weapons of the Christian warfare are not physical but spiritual. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4. So even in this moment when Christ is being assaulted, when they're laying their hands on Him and seizing Him, He has taken control of the situation, put down the violence of His own men, teaching a lesson in the midst of putting down that violence, performing a miracle to heal the one who's been wounded through the violence. What a Savior. What a Savior. And He is clearly demonstrating that He came into the world the first time not to judge but to save. Not to destroy but to deliver. This is what He has said, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God... Did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. John 12 verse 47, if anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He means I don't judge him immediately. I don't judge him right now because that's not the purpose for My first coming. It's not destruction. It's deliverance, salvation. But let me quickly add, you must beware of another Jesus that is often preached from pulpits throughout evangelicalism in our day, and that is the preaching of the gentle Jesus who would never judge anyone. It's a false Jesus. It's an unbiblical Jesus. Because even when Jesus was saying that He came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it, not to judge it, but to save it, even then... He was giving warnings about His second coming. About the judgment that is on its way. When all His enemies will be destroyed. Matthew 16 verse 24 for example. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Judgment is coming. When I come again, judgment will be done. Each one will be repaid. From the previous chapter, the one we're studying now, Matthew 25, verse 31, You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. As John the Baptist said of our Lord, He is the one who baptizes with the Spirit and with fire. He is the one who saves. He is the one who judges. And he entrusted that same word of warning to us. We not only declare the good news of Jesus the Savior, we must declare the warning of Jesus the Judge. Both must be preached. Paul preaching in Athens in Acts 17, verse 30 said this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. How will God judge the world? In and through His Son. Jesus will be the judge just as surely as He is the Savior. Acts 10 verse 34, So Peter opened his mouth and said truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, After the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Interesting, isn't it? Right after Peter talks about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, I would think the first thing he would say is, and he commanded us to preach the good news, which of course Jesus did command them to do. But the first thing he mentions in this context is he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He's the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives... There's the good news. Everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. There's a judgment coming, but in His name you can receive the forgiveness of your sin. He is the Savior, but He is the judge. Well, here He is in this garden... He has come into the world not yet to judge it. He has come into the world not to condemn it. He has come to lay down His life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everyone who looks to Him will have all of his or her sins forgiven by virtue of the shed blood of Jesus, all of His righteousness given to them as a gift, received by faith, Christ laying down His life for His sheep and His saving... Work not His destroying power is on display even here when He puts down the violence and heals the ear of the high priest that Peter had cut off. He's not destructive. He's not destructive. Second, notice He's not defenseless. He's not defenseless. Verse 53, Or do you think that I cannot appeal to My Father And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. So we said this morning, he is sovereign over his own arrest. He He is clearly controlling all of the elements going on in this arrest scene. And he says to his men, as he puts down the desire to fight, he says, don't you know, I could stop all of this with a prayer. All this can stop. It's as near as me voicing a cry for help. As I said, he has emerged from a long time of prayer in the garden, but his prayers were not to avoid this. His prayers were to submit to this, to embrace this. He's not going to pray differently now. Don't you know, Peter? Don't you know, men, that I can appeal to my Father. He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Obviously, the Lord doesn't have a specific number in mind, but just to give you a sense of the largeness of the help available to him, a Roman legion was somewhere numbered between five and 6,000 men. And so taking the lower of those estimates, say 5,000 men, and you multiply that by 12, he's saying, don't you know in a moment I could have 60,000 angels right here to give me help? And we've already been told in the Gospel of Luke that when he was in the garden praying, there was already an angel there ministering to him, strengthening him. Luke 22, verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. So he is not helpless. He's not destructive. He's not defenseless. Which also means, verse 54, he's not disillusioned. Therefore, how will the Scriptures be fulfilled? which say that it must happen this way. This is not a disillusioned man. This is not a man caught off guard. Our Lord is not surprised. In fact, He has already told them in the upper room that this is going to happen. Told them on numerous occasions what was going to happen when they made their way to Jerusalem. And He's telling them again, right as He's being arrested, that this must happen this way to fulfill the Scriptures. Don't Fight. This is the will of my Father. Don't fight. This is the cup I must embrace. Don't fight. This is the way to your rescue. This is the way to your deliverance. Jesus is not a victim. He is victorious. He's not surprised. He's sovereign. Nobody's taking his life. He's laying it down voluntarily. He is not in a panic. He is in control. This is a chaotic scene, but there's no chaos with Jesus. So we see the betrayal, verses 47-50. We see the one who's betrayed, verses 51-54. through 54. And against that dark backdrop of man's sin, you see the glory of God in the face of His Son. His majestic dignity and strength and sovereignty and kindness and calmness all on display in the night when He was betrayed. Brings me to my final point, verses 55 and 56, and that is the blind. The betrayal, the betrayed, and now we see the blind. At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place in order that the Scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Jesus now not speaking to His disciples, speaking to the very ones who came to arrest Him. Speaking to the blind one. And when I look at this, I want to ask them some questions. I have mentioned it already. You talk about the healing that takes place. You talk about the bowling over of the soldiers. You talk about all that has occurred in this scene. And, and you want to ask some questions of those who came to arrest Him. I want to ask them, can you see your fear? Why do you have somewhere between 600 and 1,000 people there to arrest one man? Can you see that you stand in awe of the one you've come to seize? Can you see that? Can you see your injustice? We, We talked about it this morning, but Christ references it in verse 55. You've come out against Him like you would a robber, a thief, someone who's proven to be dangerous. That's not Jesus. Even now, even now as you seek to arrest Him, He puts down violence. He heals this man's ear. Why is it like this? Can you see the injustice in what you're doing? Can you see your sinfulness in your fear and in your injustice? Can you see your impotence? Can you see that he's in control here? Can you see that? Can you see that the only reason you're able to arrest him now is because he desires it so, because he allows it to be so? This is what Christ points out when he says in verse 55, every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. That's not just a factual statement, it's it's a searching statement. If they had just stopped for a moment and reflected upon it, they would have understood that He is the one in power here, not them. Because this is a recurring theme, for example, in the Gospel of John, how often they sought to arrest Jesus, how often they sought to destroy Jesus, but they never could. John 7 verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I've come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 7, verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees. This is not the first time they sent the temple police to get Jesus. They sent them in John chapter 7, sent the temple police to get Jesus, the officers of the temple. Those officers come back empty-handed. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees say to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. I mean, they are rendered... Incapable of seizing him by the power of his teaching, by the power of his person, by the power of his ministry. No one ever spoke like this man. John chapter 8 verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore... Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Not only the sovereignty of God at work in their attempts when they fail, but the sovereignty of God on display when their very desires to do so are nullified. They just don't even attempt it because His hour has not yet come. John 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid Himself and went out of the temple. John 10, verse 33, the Jews answered Him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God, God, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you were gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him of whom the Father, him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. John is just cataloging how many times they have sought to seize him and not once were they able. Why? Because it wasn't yet his time. And when it was his time... It was only his time because not only was it the will of the Father, but it was the will of his Son. Jesus gave himself over voluntarily to this. He said to Pilate, if my kingdom was of this world, my men would have been fighting. John 10 verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. That is the searching aspect of the statement you find in verse 55. Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. The question, if they could just see that is being communicated to them in this scene, why are you able to seize me now? And the answer is because he gives himself over. He lays down his life. His hour has come. So I want to ask can you see your fear? Can you see your injustice? Can you see your impotence? Can you see the scriptures? Can you see the scriptures? Verse 56 But all this is taking place in order that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. You are experts in the Scriptures. You know the Holy Word of God. You've memorized it. You teach it. You wear it. You display it on your homes. Do you understand it? Do you understand what you've been witnessing these three years? What you've come in contact this very night in this garden? What you've come in contact with? Do you recognize that you're... Are you putting together what you're seeing with the Word of God? It's amazing to me when and it's to the glory of God in in the foolishness and the weakness that characterizes so many whom the Lord saves. Not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise. God is pleased to put His strength on display through the weak and His wisdom on display through the foolish. Those who are lightly regarded by the world, God is pleased to impart the vastness of His riches to them. John 7, 31, it says, Yet many of the people believed in Him. They said, When the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this man has done? These are not the religious leaders. These are the common people. And they're putting the Scriptures together with what they're witnessing. And they're saying, How would the Messiah do more than this? If this is not the Messiah, what more could be done? They understood signs signs when the Christ appears will he do more signs than this man has done but these people are blind by the way Jesus did not discourage that as we read a moment ago if you don't believe me at least believe the signs can't you recognize what you're witnessing and the source of what you're witnessing Nicodemus acknowledged that didn't he when he came to Jesus by night We know, teacher, that you're from God because no one could do what you do if God was not with him. Now, Nicodemus was not yet there, was he? He didn't yet really understand who Jesus was. But he knew this. He was an honest enough man to know this. Jesus could not do what He was doing if God was not with him. But the blind, what do they do? They attribute what Jesus did to Satan. So, the betrayal the betrayed, the blind. The darkness, the ugliness of who we are when estranged from God. The glory of the One who came to save people like us. Not a victim, but victorious. Not surprised, sovereign. Not having His life taken from Him, laying it down. Embracing the cup, drinking the cup that His Father has given Him because this is the only way that the great shepherd of the sheep can save His sheep. He must be our substitute. He lived for us, then He died for us, then He was raised for us. He lives forevermore for us. As Adam said earlier, He is the only Savior for the whole world which is why the gospel needs to get out in London and why the gospel needs to get out in Spring, Texas. This is the only answer for sinners. Final thoughts before I pray. One of the things that stands out in this text is the Bible is the Word of God. And every word of it is certain. Our Lord twice references this. Verse 54, verse 56, Therefore, how will the Scriptures be fulfilled? which say that it must happen this way. Verse 56, But all this has taken place in order that the Scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Every word of God is pure. Every word of God is tested. Every word of God is certain. Every word of God will be fulfilled. I'm asking tonight, are you living like that? Do you look to your Bible and know it is the Word of God? Now, I know we know that formally. I know it's on our doctrinal statement. I know you would subscribe to it and you would affirm it. I'm just asking you, if you really believe that, let's acknowledge that we really believe things that we don't always live up to, right? I mean, we really do believe it, but then due to our sinfulness, we're not yet glorified. We find ourselves living below the standard of what we really do believe. So I'm asking you, do you really believe this is the word of your Creator, given to us, entrusted to us for our living, if we say yes, then we need to ask, do we not, why don't we read it more? Why don't we spend more time in it? And then when it comes to decision-making time, why aren't we following it? Why aren't we submitting our lives to it? If it is trustworthy and good, perfectly wise, if this represents the safest place for all of our feet to travel, why are we not reading it, memorizing it, speaking to each other in its words, submitting to it in our decisions, striving to have the character displayed in it, formed in our lives, knowing that God must do that work, conforming us to the image of His Son. Why is this not our course? The Bible is the Word of God. Every word is certain. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the fulfillment of the Bible's promise of salvation in and through the Messiah. This Jesus whom you're reading about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and it's spoken of throughout the rest of the New Testament is the Messiah promised throughout the Old Testament scriptures. This is the one. John the Baptist did not have it wrong. The disciples did not have it wrong. You don't have it wrong. Jesus is the Son of God. And when we're convinced of that, then there will be a holy boldness to speak of Him throughout this world in which we live. All around us, men and women who are perishing on their way to hell forever. That's reality. That's the truth. And you know the one, the only one, who can save them in their sins. From their sins, rescue them for God. His name is Jesus. Now, are you unashamed to speak His name and to make Him known? Look at this scene and you see Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Third thought, the confidence of sinners as they act in their wickedness is in fact a judgment upon those sinners. These people arresting Jesus no doubt felt as if they were accomplishing something. This is what we've been seeking to do. Now we've finally done it. There's a confidence. So much so they're plowing through the obvious, the healing and the supernatural display of power and all of the rest. They they just plow through it all confident that they're accomplishing something and what they don't understand is. That confidence is is mercy in one sense because what wicked men meant for wickedness, God means for good. This is how He's bringing about our salvation. But for these men, it, it is a confirmation of their rebellion against God. It is a judgment upon them. In other words, what I'm trying to say to you is this. Just because you feel safe doesn't mean you're safe. Just because you're on a course right now in contrast to the Word of God, in violation of the Word of God, and you feel like You're going to stay on your course. There's a confidence about where you're headed. I want you to understand if your course doesn't agree with Scripture, all that confidence you're feeling, it's just judgment. Because you're going to crash on that course. And if somehow you avoid the crash for a lifetime, you'll meet with the crash at the end of your life. Rather, What you must long for and ask for is for God to open your eyes so you can see your sins as God sees them and repent of those sins and confess those sins and get out of those sins and bring your heart and life into submission to the One who is Lord and then walk in His Word. This is our course as believers. If you feel confident in rejecting Jesus, it's no reflection on any kind of weakness in Jesus. It's a reflection of God's judgment on you. One final thought. I can't look at what men did realize who I am by nature if God had not had mercy upon me. I can't look at how ugly man is in his estrangement from God without understanding that the only explanation for the salvation of any one of us is amazing grace. God doesn't need us. We don't complete anything in God. The only explanation for the salvation of any person in this room is God chose to love us. He, as He said to Israel, He loved us because He loved us. Because He chose to. Which ought to flood our hearts with a gratefulness and a joy and a wonder. If you're like me, your greatest grief in life is you. It's how... Far we fall short of our desires to be what God will one day make us. But we're not there. And so as we fall short, there's a grief that grips our heart. But in that grief, there's also a sweetness because it's a reminder, God, if not for Jesus, if not for the Lamb, if not for Your grace, if not for Your love, if not for Your mercy, if not for the completion of His work, I would have certainly perished, but He did die for me. His blood does answer for my sins. His righteousness is my acceptance with you. And every hope, every promise you've given in your son now belongs to me in your son. I am indeed free. I am indeed forgiven. I am indeed your child. I indeed do have a hope. All praise be to you for your great, merciful, gracious, saving work in my life. For I deserved your wrath, but you've given me everything oh lord praise be to you and god's people would say amen let's pray father heaven thank you for the wonder of our savior for his perfect obedience for his love for us that endured all the way to the cross and endures beyond it thank you for the fullness and the completeness of the way that You have designed to save sinners, there is nothing left unaddressed. Your justice is upheld yet Your mercy is extended. Your justice is upheld and peace is the result of what You've done for us in Your Son. It is too high for us. It is wondrous in our sight but it is joyful to our hearts. And may we... Live each day that You give us with our minds and hearts fixed on You, making much of our Savior and telling this world the good news that they too can know life, forgiveness, reconciliation in our Savior. Fill us, Lord, with holy boldness to give the gospel in this dark hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.